You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. Lord willing, we'll look at the last two verses of this chapter. And uh, it will, for the meantime, conclude our study through the book of James. I intend uh, to go into the book of Mark as we head into Easter. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, I want to encourage you to pull out the notes provided for you uh, in your bulletin. We want to encourage you uh, to read the scriptures along with us. Make sure we're preaching the Bible to you. And then if you don't have the notes in front of you or watching from home, uh, you can go and download the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. After you download it, go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title, and uh, you can download the quotes, notes, and references all right there on your phone uh, so that you can uh, study along with us. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I want to preach to you this last part of this mini-series that we've looked at in this section of the epistle of James that I've just simply entitled The Looking Glass. And it is part 3, uh, which is entitled Kind of Christian. Kind of Christian. A practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians. A practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians is my second favorite book. And I sincerely mean that. The Bible is my favorite. You really can't have this job and it not be your favorite, all right? Uh, But this second book is one of my favorites. Uh, I had just watched the movie Amazing Grace. I don't know if any of you had seen it. Uh, And it's a movie actually about the life of William Wilberforce. I know if you grew up in church, you probably sung Amazing Grace, and it is associated with John Newton. And so when I had went to the theaters to watch Amazing Grace, I was expecting this story about John Newton. And the whole movie is about this guy named William Wilberforce. And it just so happens that his pastor was John Newton growing up the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And I was like, who's this Wilberforce guy? Why should we even care? And then, after I watched the movie, I went and fell in love with it. I'm one of those guys that once I like something, I obsess about it. I want to know everything about it. And he wrote this book called A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians. And so today, you'll see it uh, sometimes in uh, libraries and uh, in bookstores or on Amazon is either entitled Real Christianity, True Christianity, or A Practical View of Christianity. William Wilberforce was a rich man. Uh, he served in Parliament for 45 years, was in fact a hunchback, nearly blonde, and a man of strong conviction and faith. He championed medical aid for the poor, prison ha- rehabilitation, education for the deaf, restrictions on child labor, and abolishing slavery in England. The book, this book, shook England's contented Christians from their spiritual slumber. In it, Wilberforce confronts his fellow fellow countrymen as nominal Christians, or Christians in name only. By accepting the Christian creed, but failing to live up to the Christian life, the spiritual formation of English society was rotting away at its core. Wilberforce's book challenged readers to center their life, both public and private, on Christ's redeeming work and teachings. As a persistent man, Wilberforce's abolition proposal finally passed when presented for the 12th time. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And this is one of the books that helped bring about abolishing the slave trade in the United Kingdom. The reason why I believe this book is so powerful is because it points people to the raw power in the real nature of this book, the Bible. All right? 
amazing book just littered with scriptures and getting the people of England to understand what real Christianity is and how it affects them and even these political issues of the day. And he changed a generation in his lifetime. In this section of the epistle of James, James, Jesus' brother, shifts from instructions about life's difficulties to pragmatic faults on the full implications of faith. He is, in essence, telling us what it means to be a Christian. James reminds us that a wise person will control anger and eliminate one of the most common sources of hateful speech. And now here in verse 26, John unpacks that string of commands that he gives in verse 19, that we finally must be slow to speak. And the question that he's answering is, what does it mean to be slow to speak? And in fact, by answering this, he's going to clue us in on what real Christianity does in the life of a believer. Let's look and see what it says in James chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, If anyone thinks he is religious... Now, I just want to pause and make sure you understand when, when James is talking about religion, he's not just talking about formal religion. He's talking about devotion to God. All right? So if anybody says, I'm devoted to God, listen to what he says. Without controlling his tongue, his religion or devotion to God is useless and he deceives himself. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion or devotion to God before the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's the, the simple idea that I want us to, to test ourselves on. And this is nothing radical as far as the concept, but if we can get this deep into our souls, I do think it will change how you live your life starting today, the moment you leave this place, and through the rest of your life. And it's simply this, kind of Christian is not Christianity. Kind of Christian. And I'll explain what I mean by that. What I find fascinating is that this text is not talking about an adequate comprehension of tier one doctrine. And what I mean by tier one doctrine, I'm talking about what the basic essence of the gospel is. You can find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul tells to the church of Corinth, I have delivered unto you what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. That is the bedrock of Christianity. All right, That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, and then shed his blood on the, and died on the cross for all of our sins. Everything that we've said, thought, acted, reacted about that is contrary to God's will expressed in God's word that makes us rebels of God and incur God's wrath. Jesus Christ in love came and died for me, was put under the wrath of God for me so that I can be taken out from this estate and receive the forgiveness that's in Christ. And to prove that God accepts Jesus' payment for my sin and your sin, God raised him from the dead three days later to prove that he has overcome sin and the consequent death that follows. That's the bedrock part of Christianity. And here's what I would tell you. If you claim to have devotion to God, and I mean in the most general, philosophical sense, and you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that you're a sinner, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave, if you deny any of those things, I'll let you know right now, you're not a Christian. They're bedrock to Christianity. However, Christianity is not just about this cognitive Doctrine. There is a part you do have to apprehend. You do have to know something about God as revealed in the gospel. But I, I keep note, I want to note this to you. The gospel is also a power. It is a dynamic that change, changes our life. And this dynamic is seen when the Holy Spirit uses the gospel and the word of God to transform our hearts. This is why Jesus says, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven or God, you must be born again. All right? It has nothing to do with your physical birth and how you've lived your life. 
All of us are sinners, all of us are ruined, and we're all in need of salvation. But even more than that, we also need spiritual transformation. And so Jesus explains to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And he explains this born-again experience comes by virtue of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And here's what's fascinating. This is what you have to understand. So the gospel is logos. It is content. But it's also power to change our lives, to forgive us and sanctify us and make us new. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us born again, causes us to be alive to God, he gives us a new nature that is at war with our sinful nature. Now what happens? What happens? If you ever, you, if you note a real Christian, they're, they're a very conflicted person, all right? They have desires that are just like anybody else's. And at the same time, this is what you have to understand. The Holy Spirit has literally birthed in them new hopes, new desires, new fears. It's really amazing. Things that you, would, we would be, you weren't initially sensitive about before you were a Christian, all of a sudden you become sensitive about them. All right? Things you didn't fear about God in eternity, right? Now you respect God and you honor his name. And this is something that the Holy Spirit does in us. He gives us these new hopes, dreams, wishes. It changes you. Now here's the part that's fascinating. Because the Holy Spirit has done this work of the doctrine of regeneration or to be born again, it will, this work of regeneration, this being born again, will manifest, will become visible in how you live your life. So not only, and this is so important for people who want security or assurance of their salvation, there's not only a doctrinal test. Do you believe Christ died for your sins? Do you claim that you're a sinner? Do you believe God uh, uh, raised Jesus from the dead? Those things are important. That's doctrine. But at the same time, I'd say this. You can assent to all the creeds and all the Baptist faith and messages and all the uh, covenants. And if there's literally no manifestation of the Spirit's work, fruit of the Spirit in your life, then it's equally damning as if you were to reject Christ. And so what James is going to lay before you is not a doctrinal test. He's going to say this, if you're a Christian, if you claim to have this devotion to God, that God's living on the inside and he's changing you, here's a couple of things we can find out real quick whether you've deceived yourself or you've got the real deal. You're not a kind of Christian, you're a real Christian. Test number one, write it down. Here's the very first thing. It's this. Test number one, an uncontrolled tongue. An uncontrolled, or actually I wouldn't say this way, an uncontrolled language. An uncontrolled language. The word for controlling his tongue, controlling here, is literally the idea of to bridle. To bridle carries the sense of, remember, you know, you put that bit in a horse's mouth, and what do you do with that bit once it's in its mouth? You can do what with the horse? You can steer it however you want to. The bridle was the instrument by which the rider controlled his horse. It is a natural image of both control and direction. Now here's what you need to understand. If you go, Josh, I can't control my language. Again, the scripture would say, you are absolutely right. But what did I just explain to you? The gospel is not just content, it is a power. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence, he has this new arrangement, this new relationship with us. Here's the important part. He puts a bit in your mouth. You see how that works? He's going to control your language. And as a Christian, you'll still have those temptations to speak about things or to say vulgar things just like the rest of the world. And boy, when you do say them, The Holy Spirit will jump all over you. He'll pull the reins. You see how that works? We as Christians, we don't live uh, with uncontrolled speech because we're pious, better, or holier than thou. Controlled speech is a fruit or a manifestation, a visible sign that our souls have been subject to the Spirit of God. 
A pious person with a foul mouth is just a contradiction. There is no such thing. A person whose religion is the genuine article will manifest it by being careful about what they say. Failure to control one language is a telltale sign that you are just kind of Christian. And that's not Christianity. True religion is not just adherence to that set of beliefs, a creed, but also the deeds that a person does because of his beliefs. I'm not divorcing creed from deeds. I'm saying if this gospel is believed rightly, is apprehended, understood, and takes root in the soul, it will produce a man or a woman with controlled language. So the question is this, if your language is out of control, I'll tell you right now, you're not a Christian. There has never been genuine repentance that penetrates your soul and a lively faith that connects you to Jesus where the Holy Spirit comes and changes your mouth. I'm not saying you'll be perfect in language, but is there any conviction at all about the words you use? James is not arguing against religious ritual per se, but against a ritual that goes no further than just show and mere words. The Spirit will control our tongue. Without this reign over your tongue. Now listen to me, church. If you know you're that person that cannot control your language, you may be offended by what I'm about to tell you, but I need you to get this for the sake that God in His grace is showing you your sin. What He's telling you is this. If you're saying, I am out of control with my language, you're not saved. You've deluded yourself no matter how much you think you've affirmed and believed and said and been baptized. You see how that works? He says you're self-deceived by assenting to this and thinking you can continue to use your mouth any which way. And James goes, that's not real religion. That's not. Six ways we deceive ourselves. This is near the end of William Wiberforce's book, and I'm using Josh's living translation. He says it much more eloquently than how I'm about to tell you. This doesn't appear in your notes, so write fast. Six ways we deceive ourselves. Number one, we think too favorably of ourselves. Isn't it the truth that we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt? Right? And very rarely do we give the benefit of the doubt to other people. And I would submit this to you with gentleness and respect when it comes to this text. Don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Examine your language. Do not deceive yourselves. Repent and be saved. Number two, we are not sensitive to sin as our Lord is. Is it not the truth? We're not sensitive to sin as our Lord is. What I think happens in society and even in Christian culture is once words get adopted and used and everybody just, they just become kind of ice on the cake, we just get used to it. We grow insensitive. I'm, I, I have been there before. Well, it's my buddies. They know. But it's not a reflection of what the Spirit of God is doing in my life. That he is still sensitive to it, no matter whether everybody else in the world doesn't care anymore. Number three, we overlook past sins without contrition. Now, when I say past sins without contrition, I'm not saying that you're not free from past sin. You are. But I have noticed, like you'll note this in certain Christians, that they'll talk about past sin in some sense in a way that glorifies it. And I believe a, a genuine Christian, when they think about their past sins, it's remorse. They don't give themselves a past. They says, well, that was, that was just in the past, and you know everybody just kind of sows their wild oats. God forbid that we excuse it. It's sin. And if I would have continued in it, I'd be damned. Call it what it is. Number four, we may seem better to others than we really are. We may seem better to others than we really are. I think what happens is Christians, in a good way, we're surrounded by one another who wants to help us uplift and encourage one another. But sometimes we'll take their word over God's word about our sin. Hey, man, it's no big deal, right? 
You're a great guy. I know you. No, you don't. They don't know you. God knows you. <laughs> Look at what the Word of God says. Number five, we confuse mental assent with wholehearted belief. We confuse mental assent with wholehearted belief. I think it's probably one of the reasons God actually allows suffering in the life of a believer is to find out what you really believe. Because when it comes a matter of life and death and you're hanging on to a creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection and eternal life, you'll know whether you wholeheartedly believe it. And then number five, we overcome temptation because of a lapse of time, not spiritual growth. We overcome temptation because of a lapse of time, not spiritual growth. I've discussed this with other guys where there are certain sins that, for instance, there, are certain, there, there may be respectable in youth, but they're not as respectable in old age. So by virtue of just time and culture, there are certain things you just don't do anymore. That's not spiritual growth. That's just conforming to cultural standards. When we say that the Spirit of God takes up residence, as we're saying this, is no matter what the culture is in the time, the Spirit of God will cause us to go against the grain of our sinful desires in the world. That's legitimate spiritual growth. So I want you to take those things into account when you're saying, well, have I really deceived myself? Don't think it's just this thing where you're, it's this self-talk. I think this self-deception can come through many ways. Test number two is in verse 27. And it's just the first line. It's, test number two is an unconcern, write it down, for widows and orphans' welfare. An unconcern for widows and orphans' welfare. Widowhood was often a dangerous state for a woman in ancient times because economic security was often based on a husband's income and work. Greek society did look out for free orphans, all right, not uh, enslaved orphans, but not any other ones. Without social welfare, these orphans were helpless to provide for themselves. Orphans and widows had neither direct means of support nor automatic legal defenses in that society. Essentially, they, they, were, they didn't have any rights or at least any standing in their communities, economic or socially. And James emphasizes here that the Christian, the person who is truly devoted to God, has a concern for widows and orphans and it is a true measure of a person's relationship with God. Widows and orphans are especially the object of God's concern. I need you to catch this, church. When you go back and study the Old Testament, it's interesting. Because God, of course, identifies himself with the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the nation of Israel. But if you'll go back and study, too, the text on Yahweh, on who he is God over, I need you to understand this. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, also says he's the God of widows, orphans, foreigners, immigrants. He's their God. And he wants his people to understand, you can't treat them just any old way. Because their cries go to me. You see how that works? And I'm concerned for them, so my people who bear my name must show concern for them. They must have the hands and feet. Israel was given the responsibility to care for widows, orphans, those who were socially marginalized. You can look at these two texts in particular, just write them down. Deuteronomy 14.29 and Ezekiel 22.7. That was the responsibility of the nation of Israel. God often promises to judge his people based on how where they care for the husbandless and fatherless. Go read all of Isaiah chapter 1. <laughs> he will destroy a nation for how they handle widows and orphans. The plight of widows was a matter of particular concern for Christian communities. If you go to Acts chapter 6 and what many believe historically or in, the, in church tradition... That Acts chapter 6 is the beginning of the deacon ministry. the servant, And you'll see that the widows were of such concern. all right, And had become, and I mean this in a good way, a, a good problem for the church. 
more and more widows were being ministered to that the ministry kind of got out of hand. And those who are responsible to preach the word and be in prayer were neglecting the word in order to minister to widows. And so the church comes to this amazing, I think, spirit-led idea. Let's get men who will go and serve and distribute goods to these widows so that we can dedicate ourselves to the word. I need you to see how important it was. They still didn't neglect the widows or neglect the word. They just got more people involved in the ministry. It was that vital. And then I think, in fact, it gets kind of so out of control. Essentially, I do think this, that the church originally, you're talking about a social welfare program? The church did it. The early church did. But the lists were getting so long of widows that the Apostle Paul actually gives Pastor Timothy of the church of Ephesus some criteria in which we find out what was a widow in need. Now, I want you just to pause and think about that just for a moment. That should show you the charity of early Christians where they were helping so many widows and orphans that they're sitting there going like, we actually need to draw the line because people who really need it aren't getting helped. Isn't that amazing? And so he gives some criteria. I'll just, just share these with you. If a widow had no children and grandchildren, they will put their religion, uh, who had no grandchildren or children, who would put their religion into practice by carrying their own family. And listen to this word. And so repaying their parents and grandparents, this is pleasing to God. The church is responsible for the defenseless widows over 60. Now let me just tell you what this is. This is in 1 Timothy, by the way, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. I find this fascinating. Paul says this. If you're a real Christian, listen with gentleness and respect. If you're a real Christian and you have a widow in your family, a mother or a grandmother, and you refuse to take care of them, this is sin. Do you see how that works? That is not the responsibility of the church family. It's your responsibility. In fact, notice how God says it. You're repaying them. They raised you, they took care of you, and you couldn't take care of yourself, and now you return the favor. That's your responsibility. And I submit this with gentleness and respect to people. I know it's hard when we talk about widows, but think about how much could be done in our communities if just our own families would take care of one another. And then the defenseless widow, what they mean by that is the person over 60 who's given herself to the Lord, has no family or especially no Christian family that will take care of her. The church, the church family goes, we'll take care of her. We will. This is our responsibility. I love to look at church tradition and church history and hear how some of the earlier Christians practice. This care for widows and orphans. This is Justin Martyr. He lived in the late first century or into the second century. And uh, he is giving an uh, apology, a defense of the Christian faith. And he's explaining what they do during worship services in the early Christian church. And this is what he says near the end of the service. He says, and they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit and what is collected is deposited with the president. The president is just simply the one that's presiding over the service. Could be a pastor, an elder, a member of the Christian community. But someone was responsible for collecting this offering and listen to what they did. It cares for the orphans and widows, those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds, prisoners, and the strangers sojourning among us, immigrants, and in a word, takes care of all who are in need. So notice what they did is they literally come to the end of their service. The guy steps forward who's responsible for the distribution of it and goes just simply this. Anybody have anything to give to these groups? Yeah, we do. And they go and they give it. And then he's responsible to go and make sure it's applied to those categories. That's what the early church did. It's the benevolent ministry of the church. It's always been a part of it. Listen to Ignatius. He would have been a disciple of a disciple. Okay, he's considered an apostolic father. Listen to how he puts it when we have a lack of concern. He says, but mark those who have strange opinions concerning the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary they are to the mind of God. He says, mark those who don't understand God's grace and who are contrary to God's mindset. And here's how he lists it. 
For, the, uh, for love they have no care, none for the widow, none for the orphan, none for the distressed, none for the afflicted, none for the prisoner, or for him released from prison, none for the hungry or thirsty. I would tell you, you know, if you go and you go, I don't, I don't care about any of that. You're not a Christian. James tells you right here, you're not. Because God has a special care for orphans and widows, worship of him should naturally be expressed in similar concern. To have care and take care of, of, of widows and orphans is worship, is devotion to God. True religion involves adding the poor and afflicted and defending the socially powerless in our community. Therefore, one test of pure religion is how much we extend aid to those helpless in the world, whether they be widows or orphans, immigrants trying to adjust to a new life, impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped or the homeless. All of them are a part of those who we seek to minister to. Salvation includes a practical concern here and now for needy people. James envisions, here's what he's envisioning here, that individual Christians and churches whose new life because of the Holy Spirit involves a loving response to the destitute, the weak, the marginalized, that they would embody the word or the gospel of Jesus by proclaiming it to a world that's characterized by greed, domination, and oppression of the poor and powerless. Did you, in fact, realize that the meeting of needs is not peripheral, it's not optional, but it is central and obligatory to the Christian faith? It is. Listen to what Wilberforce says in A, in a Real Christianity. He says, This principle of the love of God fills the true Christian with the desire of promoting the temporal welfare of all around him and still more with pity and love as he is anxious for their spiritual happiness. Indifference then to this principle is one of the surest signs of a low or declining state of true religion. He would say, if you're indifferent to widows, you're just kind of Christian. If you're indifferent to orphans, you're just kind of Christian. Test number three, last test. And it comes in the second part of James chapter 1 verse 27. It says, and in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world test number three it's compatible or compatibility with the world's values compatible with the world's values the world when when james says the world here is a common biblical expression referring to unbelievers notice this is possessive worldview and way of living that characterize life and it's estrangement from God. It is not people. It is people's thoughts, feelings that come together and establish the world's values. The world is the values, the beliefs, and the customs of people in rebellion against God. Some of these people are just simply negligent. It's still damning. And then there are some who are militant that raise their fist up to God. And the world encourages these values and behaviors that are opposed to God and His righteousness. Church, more than ever, if you're living in this century with us, right? If you're aware, it's going to become more apparent who upholds Christian values and who does not. Alright? Christian values that are informed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God in the world and then those who simply do not know God and their values show likewise. Right? There should be two different systems. And you're going to have to pick. You're going to have to choose which ones you're going to live by. The values that are shared with us in the Word of God are the ones that's opined on social media. That's what you've got to choose from. A true Christian, I need you to know this, will be out of sync with this world. You won't quite fit in. On some level, and, and, and please get this, that doesn't mean we hate the people of the world. This is what Jesus prayed for in the garden for his disciples and those who would believe in his word. 
was that they would be in the world. That means this, that we would have an influence over people, but not of the world, that their values wouldn't inform our values. That's what he means. We participate. We don't withdraw, but we're salt and light in a dark, tasteless world. Christians who have ended the estrangement by accepting the reconciling work of God in Christ continuously work to distance themselves from the way of life that surrounds us on every side. Christians no longer live their lives in fulfilling their hearts' sinful desires to embrace or participate in the values, beliefs, and customs of the world. Christians resist these temptations, abstaining from every, in, any, I mean, everything injurious to both body and soul and diligently use all the gracious means that God has appointed to keep themselves spotless, spotless, blameless before God. Now, I do want to give one sub point that I want you to think about real quick. I know it's becoming more and more popular in the church today, or at least the evangelical world, to talk about issues of social justice. But I just want to mention this briefly, that the church absolutely has a role to play in social justice. All right? And what we see, though, what we see, though, is that the church, and I know maybe it's probably more to say the evangelical world, that may or may not comprise the church, right, swings the pendulum between two extremes I could say maybe growing up the kind of gospel that was preached to me and I don't mean necessarily even from my pastor I'm just talking about from the world around me was one of personal piety and it would have to do with this last part of the verse at verse 27 to keep oneself unspotted and it's the idea of this very devotional life that Christians we need to be different from the world we need to be set apart We don't need to be intertwined in their business. That's kind of the concept. And then on the other side of the pendulum is is a social social justice movement that does care for the marginalized, but is gospel-less and doesn't exhibit holiness, that part. And I want you to see, though, what James is after is for a church that can hold the two in absolute tension. That's what's so amazing. That we have a temporal, a true concern for the temporal affairs of people who are marginalized. That's a part of Christianity. And simultaneously, not step into this godless philosophy that embobs the world. You see how that works? That ours is informed, our care for widows and orphans is is informed by the image of God. Jesus' death and sacrifice on his cross for all people, and it moves us out to actually do something about it. And at the same time, we're not taking the world's values and swallowing them whole. (laughs) That's not what we want either. And the church that can navigate between the tension of these two poles, they'll be the only church that makes it in the next 20 years. This is the truth. You cannot swing the pendulum one way or the other. Because if you go to personal piety, you'll be monastic. We'll remove from society. We'll withdraw uh, salt and light and influence. We'll just, we'll just leave it alone. Let them just go and do what they want to do. That's what we'll say. We'll be defeated. And the church, no, church isn't called to do that. Don't come out into society. And we do, in Jesus' name, we do transform society. It's a both and, not either or. But at the same time, I think what we see is this, is that what's happening in our American culture today is that the church has for so long been involved in personal piety. It's just me and God and my little family over here. And my religion doesn't affect powerless or poor people. That the the world has just woke up and recognized somebody's got to do something about it and it has unleashed a gospelless movement. And I submit this with general respect. That's our fault. It's both and, not either or. Listen to what Weberforce says. He says, if the world observes that they have the same eagerness in the pursuit of wealth, 
and ambition. He's talking about Christians. If Christians are just as concerned about the things of the world as unbelievers are, he says the same vain taste for, for, for pretentiousness and display, the same ungoverned tempers which are found in the generality of mankind, that it will treat with contempt their pretense to be superior or sanctity and indifferent to worldly things then such a soul will become hardened in its prejudices against the only way that God has provided for our escape of the wrath to come and out, uh, come and out attainment in eternal happiness. What Wilberforce is getting at here, he says, people can sense, right, when a Christian's ambitions are the same as theirs. We just put this Christian veneer on it. And he says, but if we really want to make an impact on people's lives for eternity... They should be able to look at their lives and reckon, look at our lives and say, there's something that they're doing that's out of sync with us. We can't, we can't keep in step. We're side by side, but we're not in step. Does that make sense? We're in it, but not of it. And when we, when we get that tension just right, the point is, is that's the space that creates this opportunity for repentance in the lives of people. But if they look at your life and you claim to be a Christian, and and think about it this way, your language is just like theirs. Over your social media or whatever it is, you show no concern for the socially marginalized, right? And there's no legitimate devotion to God in your personal private life. They can smell it and sense it, and your God is worthless to them. No matter how great our doctrine is, and Christian philosophy and worldview is the best and it is the truth. But we can live lives that are devoid of the spiritual power that changes us. And James just cuts to the quick. If you've believed it rightly, you'll live rightly. <laughs> I mean, it just kind of gets to that. It'll happen. And so we have to ask ourselves, and this is what we have to be able to call ourselves on one another so that we don't deceive ourselves, is when we see our lives out of sync with what the Word of God says we should expect, then we need to come back to the very basics and say, am am I repentant of my sin and have a lively faith in Jesus? Yes or no? And let the fruit tell you the answer. If you fail these tests, if you're defective in these areas, and and please understand, I, I, I get that sanctification is a process. We're all works in process, right? But what I need you to see is, if you can say, my language is uncontrolled. I have no concern for the widows and orphans, right? My life is compatible. You can't see a difference between me and an unbeliever. Now, I'm letting you know today, you're not saved. Please repent of your sin before it's I mean, everlasting too late, no matter what you've said. And I need you to know this. Even if you've come to me and I've baptized you, right? And you don't even see these fruit in your life, say something. Don't deceive yourself. You're in danger. You're not in a safe estate. You bear the marks of a person estranged from God. No matter what you call yourself, a kind of Christian who lives this way that I just described is no Christian at all. They're just a Christian in name only. So I beg you, turn in humble prayer to God, the fountain of all wisdom, and ask Him to enlighten your understanding. Pray to the Father of lights that He would open your eyes to true your true condition and true religion. And clear your heart from the clouds of self-love that keeps you from feeling the pain of sin. I want to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I hope it goes without saying, but nevertheless I'm going to say it. That this text does not mean so if you control your language and you care for widows and orphans and your life is out of sync with the world... You are a Christian, right? And I would contend this. Anybody who says they've actually mastered the art of controlling their tongue, they have Jesus' concern for widows and orphans, and they are holy as God is holy, they they can accept that. They're delusional as well. (laughs) We all have areas to work on in this. But I'm saying, is your life devoid of this control? This concern, this compatibility, this is the issue I'm asking. Test yourself against the scriptures. 
And here's what I want to encourage you. If you're watching for the first time or you're, you've snuck in church to check out what it is, right? And you recognize today you're a sinner. You're, you're a person for whom Jesus died. He loves you and wants to forgive you of your sin and start this new birth, this regeneration, this new nature in you that will war against these sinful desires and passions. Then today, literally, you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. This process can begin. And I want to lead you in a prayer in which you can cry out to Jesus. You can say this silently in your heart. Jesus is God. He's not dead. He's alive, can hear our thoughts and whispers. Will you just pray this to Jesus? Say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and deserve your judgment. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. And you lived a sinless life. And you died on the cross for all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Send your spirit into my life and change me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer, I want to tell you what Jesus says in the scriptures, what our next step of obedience is in which we express this newfound faith in Christ, and it's through baptism. Baptism, I've been catechizing Scotty, and it's baptism is the washing of water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we go under the water... What do we do? We're showing and saying that we believe in Jesus' death for our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're saying and showing we believe in Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and spiritual transformation that he's put us on this new path. And if you've never been baptized, take that first step of obedience and, and show the church and the world that you name Jesus as your Savior and Lord. The second thing that I want to tell you, church, is... At the end of James, I would just say this is don't be delusional. Sin will deceive you into thinking us we're better than we really are. And I don't want to say, I believe that Christians can exhibit true spiritual progress, that you can look at these tests that I've given you, and hopefully, I hope you can look back at your life and see how the Holy Spirit has granted greater control over your language, how you have become concerned about the poor, the widows, the orphans. And that you really do see how my values, my worldview and system is not like the world. I hope it really is. But if you find yourself in that predicament today where you sincerely believe you're a Christian and something's out of sync, you, I would pray right now for God to grant you repentance and that you would become a doer of the word. Listen to this. This is from the Divine Liturgy of Mark. And it's a prayer before hearing scripture, but you're going to hear it at the end. It says, O Sovereign Lord Jesus the co-eternal word of the eternal Father who was made in all things like as we are, but without sin, for the salvation of our race, and that's the human race, who has sent forth your holy disciples and apostles to proclaim and teach the gospel of your kingdom and to heal all disease, all sickness among your people. Be pleased now, O Lord, to send forth your light and your truth. Enlighten the eyes of our minds that we may understand your divine oracles, your words, Fit us to become hearers, and not only hearers, but doers of your word, so that we, becoming fruitful and yielding good fruit from thirty to a hundredfold, may be deemed worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Will you pray that during this time of reflection and meditation?
Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that not only frees us from sin and, and cleanses us white as snow, but also offers us the power to deny ungodliness, uh, to live spotless in this world, uh, to care for those who are hurting, poor, marginalized, dear God, and then, Lord, to control even our tongue. Lord, may your name be on our lips. May we adorn your gospel with right living, uh, that it would redound to your glory and bring many to faith, repentant faith, saving faith in your son Jesus. I thank you for everyone gathered and listening today. Bless them in their hearing. Help us to go out this moment and to put our faith into action. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say. Amen. I got just a couple of uh, quick announcements, and uh, I do want to encourage you uh, purchase William Wilberforce's book, Real Christianity. Um, one note on it, I was going to say, is if you get the practicing views of a religious system, like the one with the long title, it's going to have some older English in it, so be prepared to read slow. But they actually have like transliterated uh, his book into our vernacular today. And so uh, you can pick it up, and it'll it'll say it'll tell you whether it's a, a transliteration, so to speak. But it, but real Christianity. In fact, I do think I have a book with excerpts of real Christianity in the church library. I've been stocking the library with some of my older books that I now replace with digital books. So feel free to go in there and ransack that. Just bring them back when you get done. Um, don't forget about uh, the women's Bible study beginning March the 9th. Uh, you can go uh, to lifeway.com. And purchase the material for that. Uh, just uh, search for Elijah. It's Priscilla Shire. Uh, and it's, um, again, 15 to $16. Last but not least, do not forget to RSVP for church. Uh, you can RSVP by simply tearing out, taking that tear-off panel off, checking the appropriate boxes. I just need your name and the appropriate boxes check. Drop it in the drop box. I'll be delighted to put those um, uh, in myself. Or you can text RSVP to our texting church number, 706-525-5351. Uh, and then you'll get sent a link. You can fill that out there. Uh, or go to our website and click the reserve tab, mtcarmeldemers.com. Click reserve, and it'll bring you to the RSVP page. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today. As soon as we finish, please exit out the doors and enjoy that beautiful sunshine. Brother Tony, come and lead us in one last song. We'll be just Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.